When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, in one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Anne Lauterbach, author of the poetry collection, Door. My father died the week before my eighth birthday. And so my birthday and his death got kind of colluded or tangled with each other or braided around each other. And I think that that was the beginning of my preoccupation with thinking about things not being in the right order. We'll be back with Anne Lauterbach after these essential words. First, I want to say thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents nine and a half years of weekly interviews with writers on craft and the literary life. This interview is one piece of an archive of more than 380 conversations that go into depth about how writers create their work and the subject matters that obsess them. Every single week to prepare and produce this show, I am doing three main tasks simultaneously. First, I'm reading and researching for the interview I'm going to do that week. Second, I'm editing and voicing the episode that will air the next week. Third, I'm contacting authors and publishers and researching the lineup for the next month and season. With this work, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without listener support. So I'm asking you with all my heart, to please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member of the First Draft community. You are hearing this episode today 100% courtesy of those who transformed from listeners to supporters. And I have to say it's been hard the last few months as inflation has impacted some of my loyal patrons who had to stop giving. Won't you be willing to replace them to keep this show alive? As a thank you, my patrons receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. 
You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash first draft writers. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash first draft writers. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you mostly for listening and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My interview today is with Anne Lauterbach, author of 10 books of poetry and three books of essays, including The Night Sky, Writings on the Poetics of Experience, and The Given and the Chosen. Her 2009 collection, Or To Begin Again, was a finalist for the National Book Award. Lauterbach's work has been recognized by fellowships from, among others, the Guggenheim Foundation and the John T. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. She is the Ruth and David Schwab II Professor of Languages and Literatures at Bard College. Lauterbach's new collection, Door, explores beneath the surface of what doors stand for. They are a barrier, an opening, a threshold, a portal, and also the sound of the wind and the act of naming. In the poems in Door, Lauterbach explores the possibilities that doors hold the shifting, uncertain realities of contemporary life. We began with Anne Lauterbach talking about what she was thinking when she wrote the collection. I, I don't really think about collections until there are enough poems to think about collections. So I don't start out by thinking, oh, I'm going to write a book of poems called Door. Everything with me is organic and evolutionary. Maybe that's true of most poets. So then there's a certain moment when you realize you probably have enough poems for to put together a book. And in almost all of my previous books, the books, they have been divided into sections with titles, sometimes often with titles. And this one didn't seem to have that kind of shape happening. There seemed to be some kind of way in which the poems were about a certain form of movement, I guess, through and across a landscape or a temporal landscape. And the the word door was first in the long um, sequence poem called Door. And then as it went on, I was putting things together. I realized that there were other poems that were untitled that could also be called Door. And then I really have spent some time maybe more recently thinking about what is it about that word and that idea or that thing, that door that was so appealing. And I think it, I think it's actually about my preoccupation with the, (laughs) this is going to maybe sound a little pretentious. I think I've been all my life concerned with or interested in the relation between the temporal and the spatial worlds and how they meet or uh, where they meet, or how, why they were ever kept apart, time and space. So I think door is a very particular kind of image for the spatialization of time. <laughs> um, that it is really about this notion of 
um, of shift and and change and leaving and entering and leaving and entering all of that in in other words just the threshold of of the of experience yeah that's so interesting the your interest in the temporal versus the spatial i'm wondering if you can talk more about if you remember where that interest came from and what it is that really fascinates you about that well it isn't actually the temporal over the spatial it's really more like how does one understand time spatially i think that's the core of it so instead of understanding time as a kind of sequence or a or a or a cause and effect even i think for me time is a is is a is a kind of dwelling and I'm constantly trying to figure out a way to dwell, literally be inside of a temporal idea. And this is very abstract, I admit. And to answer to be more concrete, I think my preoccupation with time, which is definitely through all of all of my poems, a kind of preoccupation with with the notion of time, probably began very early because my father died the week before my eighth birthday. And so my birthday and his death got kind of colluded or tangled with each other or braided around each other. And I think that that was the beginning of my preoccupation with thinking about things not being in the right order and people dying out of the natural sequence of things. And that went on in my early life for a long time because I lived with my aunt and she had many children who were sick and they died. So I was very conscious very early on of, of this, these, um, the, the idea of death being not um, when it should be. <laughs> um, and when my sister died, that became even more intense because she was older than I am. And, and it was like, why? That was just another kind of another kind of disturbance. And in, in, I think that's really the word that I that I my sense of time is always inside of a of a of a imminent disturbance or confusion, maybe about the relation between cause and effect. So there was a certain moment uh, a while ago when I thought, and, and this none of these thoughts are really original to me, I'm sure. Um, but I I began to think that I wanted I wanted a poem to have the impact of an event. I wanted it to have the status of an event. I wanted people to come into the poem as if it were coming into something that was happening to them, and then leave the poem as if something had happened to them rather than the poem capturing something that was had already happened in my life or a life or in history i didn't i never wanted to do that to capture something that had already happened but of course you can't write without that being part of the material of your work i, I don't mean i i could ever not have that happen but that wasn't the intent of the work ever when you were eight years old, do you think you started to understand this in 
a level that wasn't like, do you think something in your brain changed when your father died, taking you to a whole nother level of thinking? What a wonderful question. Huh. This is what I think. He was a writer and he was a correspondent and he was always leaving home. Uh, we lived on 18th Street in Manhattan. He was always leaving with his little Hermes typewriter and coming back every now and then and and sitting in his studio, which we could see through these French doors in the living room. And so he would sit and and write whatever it is that he would, and then he would go away again. And so he was constantly going away and coming back. And and when he died, there was this dictionary, which I actually have, which was this, the Webster's Second, which is a very, very fat book. <laughs> and it has these, the letters are, you can fit your finger into each letter and open it to that letter. And I think when he died, I believed that everything that was of significance or even even more more uh, fundamentally, I thought I could find him in the dictionary. Uh, and so I think that that began a certain path for me of a, a fascination with words and language generally. So that was one piece of it. And then the other piece was this kind of constant all my life um, um, love of and connection to the visual world, the tactile, physical, visual world. I actually began my whatever you want, might call a career as wanting to be a painter. Uh, and so I think that that collision of the temporal, verbal connection through uh, my father's dying was what got mm, connected to my interest in the visual world. They began to merge with each other, I'd put it that way. And as you're at a mature age now, do you <laughs> see things even differently How has maybe any of that changed for you? I understand this this poetry book is is says that, you know, like that's what it stands for. It's like you're putting your thoughts into these poems, but I'm wondering yeah. if you articulated it in words, like in speech, if you feel like your investigation of time and space, since you kind of were tuned on to all this when you were eight, if that's changed or if you came to any conclusions about that. I think the only thing that has maybe changed or has evolved even is that I realized that um, I have very little tolerance for or interest in retrospecting, <laughs> um, which when you get to a certain age, which I certainly have become a certain age, um, almost is almost impossible. I, I have a kind of... Um, antithesis or something towards anything that feels like nostalgia, um, you know, like a, a kind of of wanting things to be as they used to be. So that's, I think that's been, that's been something that has been continuous and, and, and is even more powerful now maybe than it was this sort of sense of wanting to be fully and profoundly even in the present 
in the now and and to find ways for whatever things that happen either good things or bad things or um to be able to to turn those things turn them like you're turning the earth uh yeah so that the so that the the event if, if it's a if it's a sad event or a tragic event gets folded into and something else comes out from it. I think lots of artists and po poets think this way. You know, I think that's something that is part of the energy of, of making things is to turn things that in themselves are, are let's just say negative into something that, that might be, consoling or give solace or give even something you know it's, it's that old story that old thing about art of how come things that are so eminently sad <laughs> uh are also so breathtakingly um uplifting that's a kind of conundrum about art making generally isn't it yeah and i sensed a feeling of ephemerality in your poetry the idea that things can't last, which might give it more beauty and um, mm. the ineffableness and how sometimes words can fail and how time and ruin and form and who are you speaking to were some of the things I, I found in your poetry. And I thought if we could start with maybe reading one of these poems, I have one picked out, but if you have okay. one in particular, let me know. And I love it when other people choose things for me. I'm an extremely indecisive person. So, um, you know, one of my dreams has always been to be to give a reading in which people actually call out, you know, requests for poems <laughs> as if one were a singer. <laughs> so um, just tell me what what um, what poem you picked out. Well, let's start off with this one. It's called Fragment stone and stone is in parentheses so fragment stone is actually a prose poem and it has an epigram from ludwig wittgenstein what has a soul or pain to do with a stone you could walk not far through the grass to the shed barefoot restless eye landing on distance there not far you could walk looking down at various grasses, weeds, clover along the way, your toes in the green, the undersides of your feet, the cool damp. Where is significance, you think, as you imagine walking across grass to the shed barefoot? What counts here? Does anything count on the short walk while looking down and then over, then up at the cat catbird? in the lilac where there are now dry brown sprays. At the robin hopping in the grass over there, what counts, you ask, incredulous at the pace, not your pace, the pace of time, as if rolling downhill, gathering speed, wound around itself like giant twine, but invisible, so not present in the sense of seen, the way you assign to the visible presence, even as what is on your mind as you walk across the grass toward the shed is invisible names, their persons, hunger, mistakes, the lost, 
and the recently slaughtered because of words believed by the hopeless lost from view, tossed into the past like a weed, a rind, a stone found in grass. So find solace in the particular single crow high in the dead ash. It's one note cry, sky, pale blue, low light sliding across wires. So as you said, this was a prose poem and it amidst the idea, I mean, it's called Fragment, um, and there's stone in parentheses, so I want to ask you a little bit about that, but it's like the the poem is evoking this idea of, you know, a sort of restlessness and wondering what is significant while looking at the very tangible, natural things around, the the sensations of it, the smells of it, the just tangibility So just wondering if you wanted to share more about writing this, you know, what you were thinking about, the title. I think I was trying to figure out, as I always am, the particulars of the world, as you call it, the tangible particulars of the world, inform or or allow, maybe, for us to to know something. (laughs) Um, And so... This this question here of what counts um, and what is of what has meaning um, and its elusiveness, I guess, other than the fact of this very tactile particular world that one is in. So there's a kind of tension between these two spaces. And I think that probably again not to be too precious or pretentious i think that's really the question about language and its efficacy or lack of efficacy maybe even particularly poetic language um and wondering whether a poem (laughs) can count uh, in terms of um making something feasible or possible or open something even just open something for us for each of us i think i like the idea of trying to make the poem have a certain motion in it like you can feel the figure moving across this this small landscape um and that that gave me pleasure. I remember thinking it was pleasurable to write something that had this motion in it, you know, that indicated the, the movement. Um, and and therefore the poem has a sort of doubling and it's the movement of the figure across the grass and, and there's the movement of the poem across itself. Fragment, you know, I've, I've, um, uh, I like the, the idea of the fragment I wrote a long time ago now, a, a little piece about my poetics, and it was called um, Toward a Poetics of the Whole Fragment. And um, that was that that came about by my wanting to think about fragments not as ruins or 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 um, broken pieces, um, uh, not the Eliadian these fragments I've shored against my ruins. But the fragment is something that was in itself valuable and whole. Um, and that if one understood the fragment as 
as a kind of entirety that it would give you some kind of um, uh, um, something, a kind of grace, actually, I think, um, by 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 being in it. <laughs> um, and then I don't stone, I guess stones are like fragments for me. Um, they're fragments of a very big stone and say the earth. <laughs> um, uh, and, and I'm very, I'm, I like stones. I, I, I'm very fond of them. They're, they're very beautiful. And uh, so a stone is a kind of representation, I guess, of the idea of a fragment. <laughs> and I often have, uh, in all across my work, I have put I have put titles in parentheses. Sometimes they are references to paintings or painters, because the poem is not about that painting or that painter, but has but in but is indig indicative or is come from or has been has been elicited by thinking about a particular painting or or painter. So I think the stone is in parentheses because um, I guess you could this this poem could have been called stone, but that would have been an inaccurate, actually. <laughs> yeah, there's a an idea in here, and it's um, you have in your lines. You say, "What counts here? Does anything count?" And I notice throughout the collection, well, you have a poem called "Count." And you have another poem called Tally. And I was walking away from reading these thinking that there's some kind of accumulation of things or there's some kind of value placed on things. You have a line later that says, please find another way of counting on me. So it's not just maybe an accumulation, but like, um, depending on someone or something. So I'm not sure if I'm sure you were conscious of that, but I noticed that. No, I wasn't conscious of, but it's a great question because, <laughs> because, um, this idea of counting, uh, is a, is one that, um, causes me, um, a lot of, uh, anguish actually, <laughs> um, uh, in the sense of nu the num numer numerology, in the sense of counting uh, a quantity, the, the idea of quantity, um, and so there's there's the counting that is about accounting or counting on, and then there is the counting up. You know, this and this and this and this, and I'm I think I have a um, a um, what would we call it a very quite deep. Um, ambivalence toward this idea of of numbers in general. Like the first thing that people want to know about you is how old you are. If you're filling in anything, and I think why is why does this count <laughs> my age? Uh, why is it such a, a strong um, sign of somebody's belonging or not belonging or being part of or being capable, all of that just makes me crazy. Not to mention the whole um, pattern of uh, the way in which we talk about the war dead is numbers and the way we talk about people who died of, of the 
of the in the pandemic is in numbers. It's just this constant numerous idea of the numerous um, of the numbering of things. It just makes me a little bit nuts because I think it's a value that is mistaken somehow. And of course, when you get to money, it becomes a kind of a kind of indictment of the culture that people think that if you have a certain amount of money, there's some kind of significance attached to that. And usually or often there isn't any, but it's, it's a wonderful question because I think it's a, it's uh it's a, it's a live, it's a live issue for me. Um, and, um, uh, and the idea of accumulation is a live issue for me. It's like, why do I accumulate things? I, why do I want to un, I want to unaccumulate? <laughs> but I don't know how. Well, one of the things that I think is really interesting about this collection is that you have so many different poems called Door. It's the name of the collection. We talked a little bit about it in the beginning. But when you think about meaning making, we a lot of times we have to interpret what people mean when they say like in our language, we have some words that can mean different things like raise. Um, You could raise a building like bring it down or you can raise it up. And yeah. people have to figure out what that meaning is by context. And I'm just interested in naming many poems in your collection with the same title. I don't know if you've done that before. I'm curious if you have, but um, your choice about that. Um, no, I haven't. Um, um, others have. I know my great friend, Michael Palmer, um, uh, in some of his early work, particularly likes to use the same title over and over again, uh, which is different from this. I think in this um, in this case, um, it amused me to think of the the book as a kind of architecture. I do that anyway because you know stanza means room and. Um, and I like this idea that you that the doors in it are literally like you're going to go into another space and then another space and then another space. And that that found that felt very um, um, pleasurable. Uh, that uh, that there were just all these entrances and exits and entrances and exits, um, and um, uh, and that they were not necessarily into anything of great merit or interest even, you know, like most of the Doors poems are quite small. And then there's the one, one long one. Um, And uh, so it just, as I said, I think in the beginning, that the the earlier um, collections have had very distinct separations between, between their parts and um and this didn't seem to have any there wasn't any way to arrange it so that um i didn't actually even want to say okay all of the there are five more or less narrative poems let's put them together and then let's put these other ones together it didn't seem to have that shape at all um and so the way in which um, maybe 
the recurring motif like a pattern in anything. It was like a kind of, okay, we're starting again, or we're opening again, or we're we're going forward again and through this this um, this um, trope of the door. Yeah, and there's so many ideas in there. One of the things that struck me, and it's interesting that you told me about your father dying, not that that was the instigation, but all our life is an accumulation, that uh-huh. um, you say in one of the longer poems in, in the part two, is door a wound? I think that was one of my favorite lines in the collection. I don't know if you remember writing it. No, it's in the long poem, though, isn't it? No, that quote, John said, I am the door. That's um, that's uh, in the gospel. And actually, it's John saying that Jesus said, I am the door. <laughs> I'm not a religious person, but I'm very interested in in spiritual possibilities, I guess you want to call it, something like that. So if Jesus is the door, and then I say, is is door a wound? Uh, Maybe that's how that came, sort of unconsciously. But I think when I started writing that sequence, I was trying to figure out, it was the first of the door poems, and I I was trying to figure out what what it was that I was trying to establish or find. Is Dora Wound is the, is the second poem in that sequence. And then it says, why be concerned as if invited to share a secret, the one behind the door? There is nothing behind the door. There is only door, a condition, a prospect, a perception in which a gap occurs or might occur. And you can step into or across, you can leap or fall, you can turn away, go back. It's an open and shut choice. It's a dare. So that idea of the door being the place of of choice, of risk, of possibility, and of of annihilation, uh, that seemed to me part of what I was trying to negotiate in this, in the book, actually. If someone presented you a door that was closed and you had no idea what was on the other side and they were like, your life as it is, is on this side or open the door, which would you do? I would open the door. I would too. Even if it was like a burning (laughs) fire, I'd have to know. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, there's a so there's so many other things that have to do with of greeting, you know, the idea of greeting, the idea of letting something in that it wasn't that didn't something or someone in is so powerful to me. Yeah. And the and the wonderful way in which when you open the door, you really don't know what to expect that's going to be on the other side. But this is all we got. (laughs) You know, this is the only life we have. So maybe we just have to open the door. Yes, we have to take the risk. We do have to take, we do have to open the door. I mean, otherwise, you know, you can hide behind the door if you want. But it seems to me that 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 will lead to diminishment and deprivation of one kind or another. It's just so much more interesting to 
to, you know, I mean, there, when I was very young, I, I used to throw the I Ching, the Ching and, um, and I remember it would say it furthers one to cross the great waters. And, um, and I always, I always loved that phrase. It furthers one to cross the great waters. And it's sort of like it furthers one to open the door. I think too, as a poet, you know, door is such a symbol in all, all your poems. And you do start one of the poems saying, let's explore what words cannot. And on the face of it, it seems very ironic for a poet because that's all you have are words. I mean, you have the images and the symbols too, but there are such boundaries to what words can convey. Yes. Well, not only what they can convey, but what they can. I mean, I think there is, I think I said this in the beginning of our conversation, that the question I think, which is very strong in this collection, but I think all the way through my work is this idea of efficacy. You know, what is effective in terms of language? What can, you know, Auden said poetry makes nothing happen. Um, uh, but he was, I don't know that he believed that for a second, actually. And I think that the question about the efficacies of language and the use of language and the and the and the misuse of language and what it does to cultures is so relevant right now. I mean, it's always on my mind. And after suffering through the years of Donald J. Trump and his abuse of language, I felt, you know, a kind of a kind of terror that the that language was going to no longer have any um, tenacity or or relevance or way to touch down on how things are, you know, on the real world. And that that was um, some of these poems were written in the in the in that sense of turbulence and terror that that words were just going to not be effective at all because they were being emptied out of any kind of significance that we could count on to go back to that. Yeah, which makes me think of a line you have in one of your earlier poems and you say the poem is called Table and you say we had best pay attention to what we care about. I think you're also talking about that, like caring about language and watching maybe our political choices, uh, whether we individually made them or not, eke away the things that are important to to us, um, either individually or as a society, and that paying attention comes in all forms. Yeah, well said. I absolutely think that's right, and I and I think that you know if I were going to say what's what what are one of the core ideas or thoughts or whatever you want to call them, or, or just one of the things that just inside of this book and maybe some of the others too, is this, of this care for language, you know, and I sometimes tell my students that, 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 that poets are, that we have a job to do. I'm always wondering what the job is. And, and, and one of the jobs of the poet, it seems to me is to, is to, take care of language, to care for it uh, in this very, very specific way of not abusing it and and not being cavalier about it and not even using it as a 
as a political tool. I think that there's a way in which language doesn't want to be um, turned into uh, uh, ideology. Um, at least I don't want it to be. I want it to serve as a kind of assurance or reassurance that we can that we can understand each other, and that thinking and feeling are commensurate with each other in language, that they don't have to be separate from each other. Again, a little bit too grandiose, but you know, I'm. I think that poems are always trying to do that. That kind of invisible mend between the state of feeling and the state of thinking. I'd like to have you read one more um, before we get to the end of our discussion. And I'm going to ask if you could read Nocturne. This also, even more than the other one, another sort of prose poem. So that's interesting that you've chosen two poems that are pretty, this is definitely a prose poem. The other one has a, a kind of idea of lines of lineation. Nocturne. It turns out there wasn't a door, so she stood looking at the wall, and then at the ground, and then again at the wall, and then up at the sky. The sky was doorless, which was comforting, especially at night, when she could make images from the stars by drawing lines between and among them, as the earliest persons had done as they walked along on the desert sand. But now, looking up into the brightly strewn array, she could not draw a door because the shapes she saw resembled other geometries. And although everything seemed infinitely open, there was no way through. Perhaps she thought, I can draw something else, not a door, but simply a path. Why would anyone want to be inside when the way through cannot be enclosed? Why am I sad that there is no door, she asked herself. And then she saw how she had turned in the night air and found herself entirely enclosed. And she asked herself, how is it possible to be at once enclosed and illuminated? I, I love the last line. And I think I also really liked the idea that we're talking so much about doors, but what if there wasn't a door? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, well, I wanted somehow, you know, to to suggest the firmament, uh, which um, is free of our architecture. Uh, and that gave me kind of joyfulness. Um you know, I have a collection of essays called The Night Sky, and uh, it's a, it's an idea, not even an idea. No, it's an experience that um, gets us outside of the house of the body and the house of the house and the house of, the, of all of these structures that we make to protect ourselves and to make ourselves feel significant. And the idea of the embrace, you know, of being entirely enclosed and illuminated. Is seems to me to be very like a profound moment of love. I want I want to say something like that's what love is. You know, it's an enclosure that's also an illumination. Is there anything else you want to say about the collection before I get to the final questions? 
Uh, no, I, I uh, thank you so much for um, having having looked at it and asked me these wonderful questions. Um, I um, I hope it uh, I hope it gives um, some people pleasure. Is I guess the the thing that I want to say. Uh, it was written, you know, really in very very dark times, uh, and so. It has a kind of um, maybe more than any other book that I can remember. It feels like it came out of a really quite profound uh, sense of interiority, um, because we were all, you know, uh, we were all enclosed, um, and um, so I. So I, when it came out, which was only a week ago, I felt qu quite. I felt it was more vulnerable than any book I've ever written because of that, because of the sense that it was that it that it was written in this in this solitude, you know, basically in inside of a solitude. I mean, all writing is is written in solitude, but um, but it was a kind of universal solitude that was anxious making. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I can. I was hard. It was a hard decision to come to the person or the poet, um, and I was thinking that the uh, the poet Barbara Guest once told me that she thought mystery was the most important element of a poem, and my question has been: How can a poem be simultaneously mysterious and clear? Uh, and the poet who has done this most consistently for me is John Ashbery. And his work has been a kind of wonderful guide uh, for me over the years. Um, so I'll read uh, the last four stanzas of his poem, A Blessing in Disguise, um, which no matter how many times I read, and I have read it many times because I have a, a, a broadsheet of it, uh, it doesn't settle into sense, but still it carries um, so much uh, mysterious meaning. Mysterious meaning, I think, is exactly right. Okay, so here's the the last uh, four stanzas of of uh, a blessing in disguise, which is um, seven stanzas long. So it's the final half, let's say. I cannot ever think of me. I desire you for a room in which the chairs ever have their backs turned to the light inflicted on the stone and paths, the real trees that seem to shine at me through a lattice toward you. If the wild light of this January day is true, I pledge me to be truthful unto you, whom I cannot ever stop remembering remembering to forgive, remember to pass beyond you into the day on the wings of the secret you will never know, taking me from myself in the path which the pastel girth of the day has assigned to me. I prefer you in the plural. I want you. You must come to me all golden and pale like the dew and the air. And then I start getting this feeling of exaltation. Is there anything else you want to say about it? <laughs> well, um, 
I just find that to to end a poem with so much um, spatial ambiguity and confusion about this you and this I, um, it begins, you know, um, yes, they can, they are alive and can have those colors, but I and my soul am alive too. Um, uh, there's this just incredible, um, yeah, mysterious clarity. That's the only way I can put it. Um, uh, because I can't picture where anything is in this in this poem. I don't. I know there's a path, and there's light, and there's um, and there's a sense of a person talking to someone, but the someone is also oneself. And I think a lot of poems are like that: that you're talking both to yourself and to someone or someones. And then I love this. I I prefer you in the plural. I want you, you must come to me all golden and pale like the dew in the air. There's something about that wanting you in the plural finds I find that very powerful in a poem that 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 has the attitude of a lyric love poem, but is actually something else. And I think it's really about for me, I think <laughs> I think I sometimes think that wanting you in the plural is about um understanding that the IU is always a single and a many, and the U is many. And that's a kind of um that's a kind of understanding of how we should think about the the demotic, you know, the inclusivity of the world, to think of the U as everyone. Uh, and not just someone. So I find that very moving. Um, and then, and that the plural you brings on a feeling of exaltation also I feel is very powerful and beautiful and something like uplifting. Um, so I find this poem um, profoundly moving and constantly mysterious so i can go back to it and and be happy that i can't really make full sense of it in the in the literal sense of sense making um <laughs> and if you know anything about my work and the way i think about it i'm i'm okay with with that uh, elusive notion of sense um and i'm drawn to the idea that meaning is not always converted into sense making and and understanding is something that is, goes beyond just pure um uh acquisition of knowledge as information so poems uh, swerve around this idea of knowledge as information or data and make make another kind of form of out of meaning for meaning another form for meaning you know, it's like Dick Dickinson said, I dwell in possibility. And I think that's right, that the poem can be a kind of dwelling for the possible um, and not just for the uh, explicitly, the explicit. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft or something that you really like. You know, I, in um, staying with this with this door book, the poem toward the end is called Company, which is a narrative poem. And it was the whole poem was extremely hard to write because I was trying to contend with some emotional spaces that I didn't know how to address and um, that had to do with a sense that 
um, that things had been said or done that I didn't know about and that implied me. Um, and so um, this, and I also decided that I was going to try and write a poem that had that had some kind of narrative extension, which is, as you as you know, it's not so easy for me. So the whole poem was really hard and to um, to try and and um, negotiate these various uh, these various images and narrative scraps that were circulating in me. Christmas Eve, I announced I wanted to have a conversation about materialism. There had been no gifts. Everyone was lonely and bereft. Everyone, no exceptions, not even the beloved. The remark fell into the stormy night like a shooting star, invisible, so no one made a wish. No one said, what? Remember when the ferry pulled away from shore and the receding land seemed increasingly phantom as it flattened a silhouette against the horizon like Catalina Island behind this poem on the screen? It was that kind of moment, distant, arrested, distant silence. The reverie faded, too, with its ribbons and bulbs, tinsel twisting in the breeze, the kids on the bed with their stockings, walnuts and mandarins, and balls wrapped with surprises. What did you get? A frog, and a bell, and a green plastic ring. You failed, hissed the fool from his stool in the closet. You failed the test, and you can't do it over as if there were a story, as if it could be told and told again without variant, not a single word out of place, like a ballad sung generation to generation, carrying its sentiments forward on its old tune. Repeat after me. Oh, oh, oh. The song always begins with an O. Oh. The O's are behind me now, obedient as pets. The fool isn't talking to me. He is talking to you. Why did you choose this one? Oh, I just feel that it's kind of, kind of got this, this uh, angry, desperate uh, turn in it. And I think when I wrote those lines, repeat after me, oh, 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 the song always begins with an O. Oh. I was thinking about the national anthem among other things. The O's are behind me now, obedient as pets. The fool isn't talking to me, he's talking to you. I felt, I just felt this sort of, this sort of really interesting way of turning the, turning the issue out into the world. You know, the issue of what are we going to do and, and how are we going to correct some of the damage that has been uh, made in the, <laughs> in the name of nationalisms and um, so on and so forth. So it just, it was a very, it was a very difficult, complicated poem to write. It begins with Anne Bradstreet asking why she's been banished. So there's a sort of current in it that I felt has some reach, I guess, kind of reach. You know, the same, in that same poem, it says, learn again to speak. You know, so it's, it's all about this sort of desire to, to re-see and re-say uh, things that, for which we care. So that's the kind of 
fundamental gist of this whole book, you know, like seeing and saying, and then in seeing and saying and being clear to know that that's how we care for ourselves, each other, and the world like that. Rather, again, a little bit too pious. I I apologize. I do have a sense of humor. (laughs) Where do you write? Where do I write? I write wherever I am. That is where where words occur. Um, I don't have a particular, I revise pretty much at my desk. But now that we have these machines that move, I and that also is not necessarily a steady thing. When I'm actually really revising, it's usually at my desk. But when I'm writing, I have many, many notebooks uh, in which there are often little scraps of language. Um, and so I think I, I, there isn't a place that I go. And and often I'm sitting in my study now, which is a little, little bit little bit chaotic and I don't really like to write inside of places that are chaotic. So I try and find places that are fairly um, serene. (laughs) What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I don't think I ever get away from writing. That is not to say I write all the time. I don't. I'm a very infrequent writer, but I think because of my particular weird mind, it's always the articulating angel is always going on. And sometimes what she has to say gets down on paper and sometimes it doesn't. But um, I do garden. And so when the spring comes, I spend a lot of time in the garden and that physical work is great and I love it. Um, And I think that that but actually, it, it's this odd thing, and, and this is probably something shared with many writers, that that when I'm doing the dishes or vacuuming or gardening or whatever, um, yeah, those are ways in which the mind is actually freer than if they're, you're sitting and staring at a screen or a piece of paper. So a lot of the language that begins a poem will come out of the out of doing something that isn't writing, right? Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, I very rarely show my work to anybody to get feedback, I have to say. Um, why? I don't know. Brad Morrow has published a lot of my poems over many years in conjunctions. And every now and then he'll say the theme of conjunctions is X. Do you have any poems? And I'll send him poems. And then he'll send sometimes very wonderful, uh, clear editorial comments, but it's not the same as sharing your work with another poet, which I do on occasion, um, but, but very rarely. I'm, I'm extremely timid about, it's a fact that I'm not proud of at all. It just is what it is. I think that one of the things that I have tried to do, and I try and help my students do this, is to create inside of me a reader. So I think I have a pretty good reader person in me who isn't necessarily a judge, but but that reader um, is the is the figure who asks. Well, I ask, is this interesting? I ask of her, is it? And so I pretend that I haven't written the poem, and that's useful. That the the reading of a poem that you don't think you've 
that you you actually divorce the sense that you wrote it. That's a very powerful thing to try and do. A little, it's a little thought experiment, but it it can be very effective because we 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 can become attached to things that in fact the poem doesn't want at all, and so you have to respect the desire of the poem, which is an interesting thing to say. But I'm absolutely convinced that poems have very particular needs, <laughs> like children, and um, the best thing you can do is to obey those needs. How have you dealt with rejection? Uh, I haven't. <laughs> uh, I don't. Um, I never send my work out. You know, it, only, it gets published because people ask for it from time to time. Um, I'm just terrible at rejection. And I got, um, I, I sent some poems years and years ago to The New Yorker. Uh, and uh, when Alice Quinn was the editor, and um, I sent her a little chapbook I had made, a beautiful little chapbook that had been published. And she wrote back and said something like, the first line was, these are some of the most beautiful poems I've seen. <laughs> and the next line clarified that to mean she liked the way it was printed. <laughs> so not the poems, but the printing. Uh so I never sent another poem, I think, ever to The New Yorker after that. Um, I was so devastated. So it's rather pathetic. Uh, I'm not proud of this either, uh, but it's the case. I'm very, very thin-skinned. And I think, as I said to someone recently, I'm basically unprofessional. I mean, to not send your work out is unprofessional. But I'm not particularly somebody I just had a... I don't know whether you know, I just had a whole bunch of poems published in Poetry Magazine um, in a folio, they're calling it a folio, very lovely. And several people have said to me at the that the note at the back of, of Poetry Magazine says, it's the first time I've ever published there. How is that possible? And I said, I never, <laughs> I never sent them any work is how it's possible. <laughs> so that's the answer to that question. <laughs> What is your favorite word? Well, I, I'm sure every time you ask that question, people say they have no idea how to answer it. But um, since you asked it, and I'm sure people have come up with an answer. Years ago, again, years ago, I think I thought that sleeve was the most beautiful word um, for the sound of it. Uh, I can't really say much more about that. I just love this word sleeve. And then I thought, well, what's my favorite word in terms of what it means is probably wonder, because to wonder is to enter the place of not knowing. And to, I like the fact that it moves towards wander and wandering and wandering um, have a kind of deep affinity for me. Um I don't think I love the actual sound of the word, but I love the sense of it. And I think that, I think somewhere I read that philosophy begins with that word in Greek, the idea of wondering. So in terms of meaning, but not in terms of sound, I think I would say wonder. Well, thank you so much for your time and sharing this conversation with me. My pleasure. Thank you so much for these wonderful questions and for your attention. I'm very honored. 
If you like today's show with Anne Lauterbach, author of the poetry collection Door, check out my interview with Nick Flynn, author of the poetry collection I Will Destroy You. We talked about writing deeper into emotion, the mysteries of the content of his work, and aloneness. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 400 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Mona Simpson, Abraham Verghese, and Sebastian Barry. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.